Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Uh, My name is Brandon Freemian. I'm the equipping pastor here at the church. Uh, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do rejoice that in Jesus Christ we do find freedom, that you have set us free, and you are the only one that could do it. And we give you the praise and the glory for that. I pray that as we enter into your word this morning, that you would give us hearts and minds that are good soil to receive what you would have for us, and that from all this you would receive the glory in your name. Amen. So today we are continuing in our series, Ecclesia, uh, the called out ones. So you remember kind of the path up to here, we uh, had a series where we went through Jesus's farewell address in the Gospel of John, where we saw Jesus preparing his disciples for the period when he would be gone. He prepared them for the coming of the Holy Spirit and also laid the groundwork for this unified community that was going to be characterized by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the series Ecclesia, we spent the first part of it going through Acts 1 and 2, where we got to see that vision that Jesus had laid out in his farewell address come to fruition. You see the coming of the Holy Spirit uh, at Pentecost, and then you see this at the end of Acts 2, this new community that has been formed, right? This community that devotes itself to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer and to the breaking of bread together. And you see this sort of radical generosity that they have where they're caring for one another and even selling their possessions to make sure that there was none in need. This, this unity that is striking and only can be the work of God. Now, last week, John looked at 2 Corinthians 5 and looked at how this new community that has been formed and this salvation, this freedom that we have received in Christ has a purpose. That yes, we have been saved from our sins, but we also have been saved for a purpose. And that purpose is the ministry of reconciliation, this this role that we have of being reconcilers, helping to reconcile people to God, and then also being involved in the ministry of reconciliation in human relationships. Now, that sort of implies that there is this this level of engagement that we're supposed to have in the world after we have come to faith in Christ, right? He talked about these sort of patterns of engagement that we're supposed to have. When we come to faith in Christ, it's not like a Star Trek moment where we beam me up, Scotty, and we're immediately with God, right? Or nor, nor is it that we're supposed to somehow completely separate ourselves. No, it's as Jesus taught, we're supposed to be in the world. But he also teaches the other part, that we are not to be of the world. And that's the part of it I want to talk about today that yes, we are called to be in patterns of engagement with the world, but then also there are aspects of when we engage with the world that the world sort of tries to call us back. It tries to woo us back into the things that are contrary to the things of Christ. As the the old preachers used to say, you know, the the three things of the, the world, the flesh, and the devil are still there. And so what are the patterns of resistance that we need to have? And today, I want to look not as much as specifically at like temptations to sin, because I think that that's definitely relevant to that topic. 
I more want to look at what are maybe some of the more subtle ways that we encounter in the world that make a play for our hearts, that make a play for our affections, and would seek to pull them away from Jesus Christ. So to do that, I want to actually go back to an Old Testament story out of Daniel 1. So if you have your Bibles, we are going to be in Daniel 1, probably looking at the entire chapter today. So I'd like to begin just by reading uh, the beginning of Daniel 1, so 1 verses 1 through 3, or 2. In the year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So just to kind of place this historically, we're in about 605 BC here. Uh, and if you've gone and read First Kings, First and Second Kings, or First and Second Chronicles, it recounts the the steady decline of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and the ways that that over time they had pulled away from their relationship with God and fallen into patterns of immorality, patterns of idolatry, and patterns of injustice, and ultimately God brings judgment on Israel first the northern kingdom falling to Assyria, and then here is described at the beginning of Daniel 1, the Babylonians coming and taking over the southern kingdom of Judah. So that's historically what's happening here and also sort of what's happening in terms of the the story of Israel. They are in a place where God's judgment has come upon them. Now, the book's called Daniel. So as you might expect, Daniel is the hero of the book of Daniel. And so, for the most part, you're supposed to sort of see yourselves in his shoes. But I want to do something a little different this morning. Instead, I want you to imagine that you are in the shoes of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so you are the king of Babylon. Uh, You have the strongest military force in the world. And you have been extremely successful in subjugating all of the smaller nations that are around you to the point that you now have rule and authority almost all of what we would now know as the Middle East. Okay? Now, you have a particular problem. And your problem is is that while your forces are large, they also cannot be everywhere at once, and you now have a whole bunch of different nations, diverse people, many of whom are not very excited to have you as their king. So what do you do? How do you make sure that your rule continues to extend, that all of these little nation groups don't just rise up in rebellion every time that you pull out your forces. Well, I want to read to you Nebuchadnezzar's solution, starting in verse 3. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, use without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned to them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, 
Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. Okay, so what Nebuchadnezzar would do is when he conquered a nation, he would basically take the best and the brightest. He would take the leaders and the wealthy and all those that were in positions of power and influence, and he would take them out of their homeland. And he would scatter them throughout his nation. But the very best, the very best and the brightest, the ones that seemed to have the most aptitude, he'd bring them back to the capital. And he would begin the process of turning them into Babylonians. Basically, all of the people that would be most kind of primed to be leaders in their nations, he would begin to try and indoctrinate them to become Babylonians. And that's the process you see here. He's taken these young men who are sort of the prime young men from Israel, and he does three things. The first thing he does is he presents them with an image of the good life. He lets them experience it, right? Like he brings them to the palace, and they start, as it says, drinking all of the king's wine and eating the king's food. Now, why would you as a king, if you have just taken someone captive from a nation that was your enemy, would you bring them back and start feeding them the best that you had? Maybe so that they might think about, you know, this Babylonian thing, not so bad. I could get used to this. So he gives them an experience of the good life in Babylon. That's the first thing he does. The second thing he does is he begins to educate them. And he educates them in two things. It says he educates them in literature and educates them in, uh, let me find it here. Well, the big thing is the literature. I'll find it here in a second. But he begins to educate them. And he tells them, he basically educates them in the stories of Babylon. Right? He begins to have them go through all of the stories of their gods and their peoples. Why would he do that? Well, I think story is something that is extremely important for us, right? We see our lives as a part of a story. They saw themselves as a part of a story, right? They saw themselves as a part of Israel and this, this work that God had been doing in his people. And now the king of Babylon is giving them a separate set of stories that they could identify with. The second thing, I did find it, the second thing was language, Right? He does not want them speaking Hebrew anymore. He wants them speaking the languages of Babylon, right? because language is something that's very core to who we are, and it's actually also something that affects even the way we think. That's something that we've actually discovered now, is that language actually gives us some categories for how we think about the world. So in, in shaping this, he is attempting to change their identities. He's trying to turn them into Babylonians. The third thing is he renames them. He gives them new names. Now, I want to imagine someone comes to you, right? Like, so Ellie, I'm going to call you Jill now, okay? Um, I, I guess uh, Johnny will call you, uh, we'll call you Mark, right? Like, you would look at that and go, that's, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to do that, right? There's, there's an authority associated with the ability to rename. That's actually something that also is established in the Old Testament. There's places where God renames people after they've had an encounter with him, and there's an aspect of authority to that. So, yeah, this is King Nebuchadnezzar saying, you're mine. 
I have the ability to rename you. But it's even more insidious than that because these names have meaning. So Daniel, his name meant God is my judge. Belteshazzar means a wife of the god Baal, protect the king. Named him after one of the Babylonian gods. Mishael, his name meant who is what God is. His name got changed to Meshach, which can either mean of little account, not a compliment, or who is like a coup, another one of their gods. So in renaming them, he is not just attempting to reorient their identity, he is attempting to reorient their worship. So these three things, he gives them images of the good life, he educates them, and then he renames them. Now I spend a lot of time on this because I believe those three things are still, that same strategy is used today. So I want to take a step away from the text for a second and make the case for you about how this works today. And I want to do it using what is probably the most obvious or the most upfront of these, which is advertising. Okay, so let's, let's start with advertising. Now, first, showing you images of the good life. So I read a, a great book by James K.A. Smith called Desiring the Kingdom. And in it, he does a, a thought exercise that I want to do a part of. So I want you to imagine for a second that you are at the mall. Okay, you're walking down sort of the main hallway of the mall, lots of different stores on different sides. You can probably picture which ones are there of a picture of someone arriving to work, you know, dressed to impress. Or a picture of the moment you get engaged. You can probably think of which stores I'm talking about here. Or pictures of, you know, a tender moment with your children. Now, on the surface, some of these are not contrary to the things of Christ. But what's going on there, right, is they want you to associate this particular picture of the good life with their particular product. That's where it starts. There are these images of the good life, something that is presented to you as desirable. Second, re-education, particularly in story. Um, to show you how this works, I, I really wanted to show you all a commercial this morning, but I was afraid it'd get us kicked off of YouTube, so I didn't do it. But I saw this commercial a couple years ago for a soft drink that I'm going to try not to name. Okay? It was a great commercial where there was this young man working a summer job at a corner store, right? And the pretty girl comes in and buys this soft drink from him. And then you see a couple of scenes where the young man looks sad because he's working the summer job, and the girl is off, and she's having, you know, these fun experiences, summer at the beach, and, and spending time with friends, and all of that. And then at the, the final moment, right, she comes back into the store, and she hands him the soft drink, and then leads him outside, and there's people, like, partying in the street, and everyone's drinking the soft drink, and they're having a great and wonderful time. It's a story. Now, if you sit there and pull the story apart, it's absolutely ridiculous, right? I mean, what, does, what is the message of this? If you drink our soft drink, right, you're going to have a lot of fun with your friends, you're going to have a lot of friends, and ultimately it is going to lead you to the love of your life. <laughs> right? That's ridiculous if you think about it. If you think about it. But the thing that is 
going on there is that they are pulling you into a story. Why? Because they're not appealing to you here. They're appealing to you here. They're wanting you to associate all of these things about what you want out of life with their product. That's the second, re-education. Third, sometimes they go as far as renaming. So I was walking through Target the other day, and I was walking by the cosmetics section, and I saw an advertisement for a particular cosmetics brand, and it said, you are the revolution. I thought about that for a second. I decided I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> like, does that mean that if I put the makeup on, that it'll revolutionize me? Do I revolutionize others? Like, should I have put some on before I came and preached and it would be more revolutionary? Right? Like, what does this mean? Like, but then when I, I realized, like, the power is in the ambiguity, right? Like, it, it is this appeal to this desire to be a force of change in the world, whatever that means, whatever that looks like. Another time I saw a shoe commercial, right? And it was sort of the typical shoe commercial you can think of where there's, there's someone and they're, they're like playing sports and there's other people like shooting hoops and they're doing their thing and they're running fast and they're making goals, right? And then there was a voiceover at the end and the message was something along the lines of, you're a winner or you're nothing. You're Meshach, you're of no account. It's renaming, right? It's wanting us to buy into this label. And why do they do this? Do they want you to buy the product? Of course they do. But it's even more than that, because what the purpose of this is, is it's trying to turn you into the kind of person that buys their product. They are not just trying to change your mind. They are trying to alter your affections. Now, I don't necessarily, I'm not trying to chalk all of this up to evil. You can do that on your own if you want to. But I do think that it's, it's, it's powerful to see that the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was doing to these young men in Daniel 1 is happening to us every single day. That there are these things that are making a play for our affections. And they're using the exact same strategy that we see here. Now, it's not just in advertising. I mean, you can see the same thing in news. Watch the news sometime. With the lens of what is the image of the good life that they're showing me here, who are the enemies of that good life? Right? What stories do they tell, and what is our role in those stories? And then what are the labels that they use? And they're doing it that way because they're trying to turn us into the kind of people that watch their station. Like, it's, it's, it's pervasive. So what do we do about it? What are the patterns of resistance that we see that the Daniel and his friends use? So let's look at Daniel 1, and I'm going to read the rest, through the rest of the chapter, 8 through 21. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs, and the chief of the eunuch said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned you food and drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are at your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us begin vegetables to eat and waters to drink. 
Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all the kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So the first thing I think we see that these men do is they resist accepting the image of the good life that they've been given. And they do that because they know the will of God clearly, and they know what will defile them clearly. So they're offered this food, and they refuse to take part in it. Now, there's actually a little bit of a question here about what was it about this food that would be defiling to them? Because Jews were allowed to eat certain kinds of meat, and they were allowed to drink wine in moderation. So there wasn't anything intrinsic there that would have been a problem. Now, so it could be that it wasn't being prepared in a way commensurate with the laws of God, wouldn't be what we would call today kosher. It could be that this was food that was being sacrificed to idols first, and so they didn't feel comfortable about it for that reason. Um, or it could be that they were seeing through the ruse, right? They knew that this food wasn't just food for their bellies, it was food with purpose, right? It had a purpose in mind, which was to sort of get them into liking this Babylonian life. Whatever it was, they recognized that there was something here that would be defiling to them, and they were willing to say no. And I think in a similar way, we have to be trained in the things of God enough that we know when we encounter something that is going to pull us in another direction. And, and how do we do that? So I, I love the, the, the image of when they're training people to do, look at counterfeit bills, right? When they're training people for counterfeit, what they don't do is they don't show them every single variation of a bill that's out there of how people have tried to fake it. What they do is they show them the real thing and they have them study the real thing over and over and over again so that when they encounter something that is counterfeit, what is not real, something inside of them, maybe they can't even identify it right at first, goes, hmm, that doesn't look right. And I think the same thing is true for these images of the good life that we have, that we need to be so versed in the things of God and know God well enough, we need to be so engaged in these activities that we saw in Acts 2 of being devoted to the teaching and to prayer and the fellowship and the breaking of bread together so that when we encounter those things and we see that image of the good life, there should be part of us that goes, you know, something about that doesn't quite seem right. Or it doesn't quite seem complete. So I think that's one of the things we need to be, do is, one, we need to be, have that, that knowledge of what is true and right and good so that we know the counterfeits. And when we see the counterfeits, we either need to be able to kind of diffuse it and say no, or we need to avoid it altogether. And that's what 
Daniel and his friends do here. But it's interesting the way they do it because they actually do it in a way that increases engagement. Right? They, put, they, they talk to the steward and they, they propose a test. They do it extremely respectfully. They are not defiant here, which is wise because right, they're under the, the rule of a foreign king here. And I think this leads to the second point. They walk in faithfulness to God, come what may. They take a big risk here. Right? They, put this, they put this trial, they give this 10 days to say, hey, let's just try eating something that will not defile us at the end of that 10 days. Check us out and see if we're okay. But this is a big risk. Because they're basically asking permission to defy the king. But God honors that, and it ends up showing God's faithfulness to them, and, and ends up allowing them to move forward with this without defiling themselves. There's another great story later in Daniel that I think shows us maybe even more clearly, which is when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, end up going into the, the fiery furnace, right? Because they won't bow down to, to the God in Babylon. And they, they approach the king, and they say, we believe that God will save us but even if he doesn't, we will not pray to another God. They were faithful, come what may. And I think when we are talking about the kind of cultural resistance we have to have, we need to recognize that this may at times be costly. There may be things that we just cannot participate in, that we cannot excel in, that we cannot do or be or become because we are serving Christ first. And so I think there is a, a commitment that we have to trust in God and pursue faithfulness to him in these things, come what may. Third, living into your true name. So I find it interesting that, and I believe this is true, that you, you never see their Babylonian names used again. Now, I recognize this is a book written from a Hebrew perspective, so we probably can't read too much into that. But nonetheless, it didn't work. At the end of Daniel, Daniel was still Daniel. He lived into that identity that God is my judge, and he never lost that. There's a beautiful verse in Revelation 2.17 where God is speaking to the churches and he says this. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is actually, again, a callback to that Old Testament where when God had an interaction with people like Abram, turning his name to Abraham, or Jacob turning his name to Israel, where God sort of renamed. And there seems to be an indication there in Revelations 2 that he's done the same thing for us. Right? That there is now a new name that we are under, and there is certainly a new name that we serve. Right, The name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is our Lord. There is a real identity that we have in Christ Jesus. There is a new creation that we have been made, and we need to know who we are in Christ and not let that go. And whenever we hear someone that attempts to tell us 
that we are a different name than that, or that there is another name by which we should reach the good life, we should be deeply suspicious. So these three things I see as the patterns of resistance that Daniel and his friends have here. They resist the image of the good life that they're being presented. They walk in faithfulness to God, come what may. And they live into their true name and continue to serve the God that they're supposed to serve. So my hope for today, so there's been a lot of talk over the last year about vaccinations. You're probably tired of hearing about vaccinations, right? But most vaccinations, the way they work is they sort of expose your body to something that causes its defenses to come up so that when you receive the real thing, you're ready for it. My hope for today, that was a very basic understanding of vaccinations. My wife's going to give me trouble for that later. (laughs) But my hope for today is that that this is a little bit of like a vaccination for you as you step back out into the world. That you'll kind of see the game a little bit. Be able to see it when you're presented with an image of the good life and have that pause to say, this is true. That you'll understand when you're being pulled into a particular story that may be trying to shape you in a particular way and that when someone tries to rename you, you'll respond with, no, I am a child of God. My identity is in Christ Jesus, and his is only the name that I'm going to serve. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need your help in this. There is so much that is seeking to pull us away from you. Some of it's well-intentioned, some of it's not. Some of it has bits of truth in it. Some of it is just outright lies. And Lord, we need so much wisdom to be able to see it. So I pray, God, that as we are looking to engage with this world, as we are looking to be authentic witnesses of you, that at the same time you will help us to to see what is true and right and be able to to step into these patterns of resistance so that when people see our lives, they really do see Christ. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen.